Titus 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis to Tychius to you, do your best to come home to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can. Tell Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have done everything that they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So this is the third and final uh, chapter of the book of Titus. And uh, we've been kind of walking through to start thinking about these pastoral letters. And I don't know, I guess if I was going to say the theme of them, we often read these letters to say, um, you should administer the church on the basis of, uh, I don't know, well-interpreted rules that um, uh, compel good behavior. And uh, so, you know, when necessary and when those rules are broken, it's important for us to step in and uh, correct bad behavior. And I don't know, that, that's rapidly kind of become a vision of how you think about the institution of the church. And at least as I read these letters, they're not exactly only about the institution of the church. They're about what it is uh, in the Christian community that we are called to do in order to truly love and to, uh, I don't know, but to, to act in ways that bring about God's kingdom, not only amongst ourselves, but to be a model to the world around us for what the Christian life looks like. So uh, the third chapter of Titus today poses this really simple question that uh, seems sort of unrelated at first, but rapidly comes back to, I don't know, really change the way that I think we think about this book. The very simple question is this, why were you saved? Why were you saved? And it gives a very straightforward answer, to do good. That answer in this chapter has, I think, revolutionary implications if you think about how it interacts with the text. Because one of the things about this kind of I don't know, old school institutional view of what's going on in Titus that says basically you need to learn the rules so you can properly rebuke people is that the goal of it usually ends up being something like, I don't know, uh, getting us to think about the consequence of the church not performing well and ultimately, especially in the culture that we've all grown up in, the evangelical culture that we've all grown up in, salvation rapidly becomes the focus of almost everything in the Christian life. It becomes the final product of what Jesus did on the cross. 
And I don't know, like I think this chapter basically argues that it's not only the product of what Jesus did on the cross, but it's not the only purpose of what Jesus did on the cross. And that the purpose of what Jesus has done on the cross for us is to get us to think about how we relate to and think about how we engage with the broader culture. Because the really interesting thing in this letter is, and, and I said it in starting in chapter one, what do we do with a letter that says slaves should obey their masters or colonized people in this instance in chapter three should obey the Romans? How do we think about what that means? How do we understand how that helps us understand what it means to live out the Christian life? And as I've made the point a couple of times now, but the straightforward answer of Titus here is that you were saved to do good. And I think the point about this argument of being saved to do good is it really changes the way that you think about the calls, for example, to, I don't know, obey the Romans. So I don't know, we're like thinking about the importance of a book and the books that will follow Timothy that um, highlight the importance, not quite of church administration, but really about thinking about how we live together and uh, not quite about doctrine, but as we talked about over the last two weeks, engaging in sound methods of teaching and how we relate to one another in the Christian community in order to bring about the kingdom. And the point's basically been something like this, like all the things that we draw out of this book, administration, doctrine, even rebuking are easy to translate into this kind of, I don't know, church talk, Christianese about the shape of institutions. And they easily turn over into a kind of self-satisfying, uh, self-satisfied moralizing that mirrors something that we might call legalism under other conditions. And I don't know, like it, it, a lot of folks read these books to think about this as like an elaborate manual for Christian rule following that focuses our attention on the law as a written code. And I guess I've just been trying to make the point that we're not trying to follow the law as a written code, we are trying to embody not, uh, 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 I don't know, fidelity to the words of the law, but what? A kind of faithfulness to and responsiveness to Jesus, the word. And so, I don't know, this is kind of a call, at least as I read it, not only to focus on words or contents, but on acting like and being like and loving like Jesus. Acting like and being like and loving like the word himself. And if we think about it that way, all of a sudden, Titus becomes... I don't know, something different than this book that's just about reaffirming the existing categories that we have for thinking about people and reaffirming the fact that we ought to be obedient. It actually implies something that is way different. And so, I don't know, I gave you the example last week of rebuking, y'all. And yeah, hopefully you remember that example of rebuking. And if you weren't here, basically the idea is that the uh, book of Titus uses this word that you should rebuke people who, not, or who are not following the doctrine. But the word rebuke doesn't mean to, like, say nasty things towards. The word rebuke, as the Greeks thought about it, meant something like to ask someone questions so they could see what was kind of incoherent or uh, contradictory about the position that they held. So rebuke was more about engaging in a conversation. And the same was true of the word doctrine. Doctrine is not as much uh, a written code as much as the Greek for that means something like to uh, teach in a model that mirrors Jesus. And I don't know, as we kind of work through all these different examples of how folks would have understood these concepts differently in the concept of the, uh, of the folks to whom the letter was addressed in Crete, all of a sudden all this other stuff kind of pops into sharper relief. Like well, in the first chapter, we looked at all that stuff about men and women and slaves and, and, and categories that we have for how you should treat them. But, you know, like I said, uh, uh, the, I think the point of this book is not to reaffirm those categories. The point of this book is to get us to see the transformative potential of, uh, of the Christian life of how it changes things for us to love and know Jesus. So anyway, I don't know. The text for today has another surprising message for us. And uh, Dr. Trey has talked about this a little bit, but uh, the surprising message that the text for, has for us this time requires that you know 
a little bit about, and I know I'm sorry, apologies in advance, it's nerdy, you need to know something about the literary structure of the text, uh, which is a fancy way of saying, at least for me, that when God inspires uh, scripture, God inspires scripture in a way that engages, I don't know, not just like the content, but engages the way the story is told. And I don't know, like, there's this really interesting thing about these letters, right? They were public documents. Like, they weren't written down. It's not like someone passed out a copy of Titus. People would literally stand in the public places and stand in churches and read these letters. And, you know, they, like, had to do all kinds of really interesting things. They had to get the people in the church to get the message that you wanted, but they had to do it in a way that didn't make it a lot harder for the Christian community here. And so, I don't know, Paul has this amazing, or whoever writes it, has this kind of amazing trick under the inspiration of the Spirit. And that trick is, like, to name check the conventional wisdom of the culture, but then turn around and suggest a Christian concept that totally undoes it. So that's the strategy that is consistently used in this letter. It name checks something that the culture believes that was something that the people would have been worried about the Christian church undermining, and then it quickly suggests for the Christian community a principle that totally undermines it. So we talked about that last week when we talked about, I don't know, like, women don't be drunkards and slaves uh, 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 obey your masters. It name checks or points towards something that is a piece of cultural wisdom and then it suggests a principle that uh, totally undermines it. So we're going to see the exact same thing here in the the third chapter of Titus and I'm going to kind of walk through how it uses the literary structure to make this point and it's going to be great. Okay, so look at the opening to the third chapter of Titus. It starts with what? A reminder for people to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be willing to do what is good. Okay, so remind people to be subject to rules and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do what is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. Now, this little bit of scripture and the stuff that follows it is a perfect condensation of that kind of cool trick that I was talking about. And it's what is kind of beautiful about and, I don't know, revolutionary about Scripture when you really kind of dig into what's going on. Okay, so of course we're, be, we're called to be ready to do what is good. Like, yes, that's the reason why in this chapter we're saved. We're not saved because, you know, I mean, of course God loves us and wants to save us and grant us eternal life because death is bad. But this chapter is asking a bigger question. Why is it that you were saved for how you act in this world? And, of course, The essence of being like Jesus is to be peaceable and considerate and gentle towards everyone. And I don't know, here's what's interesting. The Greek text here includes two, I don't know, does anybody's translation have two different words instead of the one word gentle? So when it says, uh, uh, be gentle towards everyone, anybody have two words there that's following along? Yeah, okay, that's a better translation. The translation that I read from translates two different words into gentle, but there are two Greek words there. The first one is equipes, and it means something like being gentle in the sense of treating people like they deserve to be treated. So gentleness there is like I owe due respect to a person and I treat them like they deserve to be treated. And I don't know, it means something like to be equitable or fair. And then the second word is proutes, and that, that means gentle too, but it means gentle in the sense of being humble or showing humility. So the point is, the Christian community is supposed to treat people in a way that is equitable and that shows humility. Now, stop and think about that for a little bit. One of the terms for gentleness is about meekness. It's about presenting yourself in a humble manner. But the other one is not. It's about making sure that people are treated equitably. So it's important, I think, 
like Lucia's translation has it, to, con- to, to translate these two terms differently because, I don't know, one of the biggest things, one of the biggest literary devices in the book of Titus is contrast. And the contrast that we'll get over and over is a specific kind of contrast called parallelism or specifically chiasmus. Now, Trey's talked about chiasmus before at some point, but if you don't remember it, it's basically a rhetorical form that turns concepts into mirrors of one another. So everybody knows and can say from memory a chiasmus that's really famous in American history. Anybody know the chiasmus in American history that is the first example everyone teaches in a rhetoric class about chiasmus? Ask what you can do for your country. Okay, ask not, and I always get it backwards, which is weird. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Okay, it's a parallel, right? It holds those two lines together. But the thing that's really interesting about that parallel is that when you turn those two things into mirrors of one another, a bigger concept emerges that helps you see the relationship between the two and understand both of the individual things differently. So like, I don't know, Kennedy's contrast is not just about who asks what of who, but it's about the idea that we have an obligation to something that is bigger than us. And so we ought to like submit ourselves to that obligation that it's bigger than us and it applies this idea that so many of us are citizens because we want to figure out what we can get out of the government, but of course we ought to reverse that and think differently. Okay, so like the parallel and specifically the chiasmus when you do that reversal is kind of rad because what you can do is you can hold two points together and you can imply something about both sides of the equation. And it turns out when you start looking for those things in this letter, it's chock full of them. So for example, It seems weird to me to say to a colonized or oppressed people who are suffering under the thumb of Roman rule that their goal should be not just to cooperate to, but to submit to the authorities. This would have been like kind of hard medicine to swallow. And it's even more weird when in a letter whose basic point is we're supposed to submit ourselves not to the Romans, but to who? To the values of Jesus and to the values of the kingdom. And it, so you gotta ask the question like, what is it asking us to do when we live out the Christian life? Well, it turns out that we're asked to do what? We're asked to be gentle and we're asked to be humble. We're asked to treat people equitably and we're asked to treat people in a manner that doesn't put ourselves first. Now, if you uh, rewound from a couple of weeks ago, what values are those the exact opposite values of? Rome. Rome did not treat people equitably. The whole point of Rome was that Roman citizens were superior to everyone else. Rome was founded on the idea of there not being equity. And Rome hated humility. Humility was a quality of slaves, not a quality of Romans who wanted their memory to echo into history. So why does this letter command people to submit to the ruling authorities? It might have something to do with the point I made last week, which is like the letter is trying to eliminate possible objections to faith to put Jesus at the center, but the more important implication is that once Jesus is at the center, everything changes. We reverse the values that matter to the Romans. The wonderful and beautiful and subtly subtly complex, even revolutionary part of Titus is that when we live a life that lives out the kind of gentleness that Jesus asks for, it not only causes us to confront and disobey Rome, but it reverses the values that make Rome possible. It brings about a little, a, a newer and better kingdom. And here's where the little chiasmus works. The people in the audience would have associated 
the Romans with all the qualities that were opposite gentle and hum gentleness and humility. They would have balked at the idea that the Romans wanted to do good. They would have thought that the Romans were like looking for their own self-serving conception of glory. So right off the bat, there's something that is interesting going on there that's very hard to read literally. So while, I don't know, like the letter calls for obedience, maybe tactically to the Romans, it's calling for values that would like totally destroy Roman culture. It's calling for values that are totally different from Roman culture. And I don't want you to think that I'm reading this too far, but then I want you to look very carefully at the grammar of verse three. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, hating, being hated and hating one another. Uh, anybody else got a similar translation? Or Lucia, what's your translation? Now, now, why does it say, what is the point of, the Greek literally says, because once we too ourselves were foolish. Who else is this referring to? Why say, we, we, we were foolish and Christ saved us, but this, it says, once we too were foolish. Who is on the other side of that too? What is the point of we too? Who else is by implication here foolish and disobedient? The Romans, the Romans. The reason why it says that the Christian is different is because the Christian understands that once implied like the Romans, we were foolish and disobedient. But the, the, the point here is that the Romans are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and pleasures. They live in malice and envy. They are hate, being hated and hating one another. There's almost no other way to read the grammar of this except to say that it is referring to and attributing those qualities to the Romans. You cannot think that this is, if you read it literally, it's saying you should obey someone who is foolish, disobedient, enslaved by passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hated, being hated and hating one another which is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is something quite different. We might obey the authorities, not because they are good, because we don't want them to get in the way of the kingdom, but the point of the kingdom is to demonstrate what? The disobedience and foolishness and deception and slavery of, to the passions that the Romans embodied. That's why the letter makes a turn toward grace. We could decide that we were better than the Romans. We could say, hey, it's time for us to overthrow the Romans because they're unrighteous, but guess what? That'd make us just like the Romans. See, grace is transformative, not because it's a pretext for going to battle, but grace is transformative because it helps us see that the Romans are broken, fallen, unable to achieve the good, in need of redemption, pointed towards themselves. As, as folks used to say in a, a little bit older day, but for the grace of God, there, there, there go I. Right? But you know, look at what follows. When the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of things we, righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through washing and rebirth of the Holy Spirit. He poured out on us gener generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, having been justified by his grace that we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Listen, the fact that we are heirs first is important. Like I've always say when I make these points, and I know some of you agree, I consider myself to be an evangelical, but one of our consistent critiques of our evangelical brothers and sisters who think differently about scripture than us is they've made the one-time decision to accept Jesus and the resulting focus on eternal life, the whole thing in Christian practice. One and done, salvation's the goal, 
that's the end of the story. And I am so grateful for the gift of eternal life that comes from that decision for faith. And it should be a source of radical hope for us. But in this text, why does that hope matter? In this text, why is that hope important? And I guess, I don't know, like the way I think about it is, like, what do you do now that death is defeated? What do you do now that death is defeated? Is that it? Are we done? Do we fold up shop? The point of this letter is to ask, is that the end of the story? And Paul or whoever is inspired by the Spirit to write this doesn't think that it's time to give up once death is defeated. And the order of priority, we're heirs first. And what does it mean to be an heir? It means that we're provided hope. And where does that hope come from? Of course, it comes from the hope of eternal life. But the goal here is to help us live into what it means to be a child and heir of the kingdom. It focuses our attention on what is to come right after this. It underlines it, which is something that happens very few times. It says, this is a clear and trustworthy saying. And then it drops the big insight. I want you to stress so that those who have trusted in God can do what? Can be secure, can feel comfortable, can feel like they're not uh, under the thumb of death. No, that they can devote themselves to doing good. That's it. That's the answer to the question of, are we done once death is defeated? No. We, we're saved, and I believe we're saved, and that that salvation is a, a gift, and that it requires nothing more than a decision of faith. But the point of this letter is that The point of salvation is not just that it suspends a consequence or a penalty from you. It's that it frees you to do good. And specifically, the letter says that it frees you to do good in terms of two things. It says, if you go back to eight, these things are excellent. The Greek word there is kala and profitable. The Greek word there is ophelia or ophelos for everyone. See, we act like sometimes our believing in God does more. What, what, what our act of believing in God does is more than suspend the consequence of sin and death. We're not done once death is defeated. We're called to do good. The reason why we're saved, defeating death is the precondition, but it's not the goal. The goal is that we're able to take on and do good once the specter of death no longer hangs over our head. It's that, I don't know, that uh, we, have, we should assume that our salvation is secure. And once that's already assumed, what do we have to do? We have to learn these two qualities, Kala and Ophelos. Now, we have an amazing Kala. And I am so proud that she has lived up to her namesake. I want to talk a little bit about that name for a moment. Kala means excellence as it's translated here. But the Greeks thought about excellence in a very specific way that we don't. When we think about excellence, we think about getting results. They thought about it more broadly, like excellence got results, but excellence was good in and of itself. And excellence was good, not just because it got results, but because it was beautiful, because it would draw us and invite us in. And so because it was good, it was beautiful, because it was beautiful, it was good, it it would draw us in, and in doing so, it would align a sense of internal, intrinsic beauty with its external character. So the beauty wasn't just aesthetically pleasing, but it was an outward sign of an inward good. It, it, it testified to nobility, to honorability, to worthiness. And I don't know, so Kala was, by its nature, distinguished in form. It stood out from the things around it, it invited you to see its beauty and to be drawn into it. And in doing so, it helped you to see the character of the true and the real good, not just the good that generates a benefit, but a good that generates a benefit because it speaks to the individual character of God. It's a beautiful concept. 
And the same with ophilemos. It means to create good for everyone as opposed to creating good for yourself. It's like the business end of agape. It's a vision of the good that sees it as advancing everyone. It sees it as not zero sum, but it sees it as, I don't know, for the advantage of the all. And guess what? Once you understand these two concepts, the chiasmus between the kingdom of the church and the kingdom of Rome or the parallel between the two is totally complete. Avoid foolish controversies, verse 9 says, and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable. They are useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Who are the people that push foolish controversies and quarrel about the law? Some of them are internal to the congregation, we know, but some of them are undoubtedly folks in the community who worried about the idea that the new faith was undermining the rules and the laws of the empire. And then here's the kicker. The word for divisive here in verse 10 does not mean a person who makes other people mad. Do you know what it means? It means a person who fights for their faction. And it has a strong implication of a person, of a vision of faction that is national or ethnic. I think it is throwing shade at the Romans who say that there is a battle between the vision of Rome and the vision of the church. Factional people are, we are told, warped and sinful, unprofitable and useless. And the Greek words there are anopheles and mata. And I don't know, you can already hear the completion of the parallel in the first word. The heir of the kingdom seeks the good. They seek kala and ophelia. But the person who is committed to their faction seeks Anophiles, the opposite of Ophelia. They seek the good of their clique or tribe, literally anti-Ophelima, and they seek their own good as defined by what advances their faction. And guess what? The word that is the opposite of Kala is Mata, sinful, evil, ugly, literally direct opposites. Once you see that, this is not just about simple obedience for the authorities. This is about establishing a parallel between Rome as an empire whose values are about seeking glory and about uh, uh, rejecting humility that seeks evil and does not seek the good of the whole and the values of the kingdom, which are about seeking instead of glory, humility, and instead of seeking privilege, equity, instead of seeking ugliness, beauty, and instead of seeking what is bad, seeking what is good, in and of itself. And in the light of that, the idea that this is a literal injunction to obey the authorities takes on a totally different character. It is a call not to associate with factional types or ideas where the Christian life aims at the good is defined by what is beautiful and gentle and greater, the powers that be aim at a ugly, violent, self-serving, arrogant pursuit of their own glory. So the calls to obey and do good and even the closing of the letter are not quite as Pollyanna as we've made them out to be. 14, our people must learn to devote themselves, which means to put their energy into, even with resistance, to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unpredictable lives. And listen, two last pieces of Greek. The word for urgent here does not mean something like pressing. 
The word for urgent here is kyrias, and it means a need that implies a specific situation. It's like saying that they need to attend to whatever they need to do to achieve their goals in a specific situation. It is a way of telling the Christian community that the message in the letter is itself, and their choice is itself to think about the best ways to advance the kingdom, given the constraints that were posed to them by their specific situation. And the same thing for unproductive. Unproductive here doesn't mean about being a slacker or not making money. It means to be fully fruitful, to achieve the ends that they were made for. This letter is a call, not for us to follow a specific rule of empire or even to understand the church as being about rules or even moral ideas. It is a call for us to cultivate what the Greek-speaking world would have called an ethos. That is a way of shaping yourself and your person the whole of your personality in order to advance this vision of what is good because it is beautiful and what is good because it is profitable for everyone. And it is therefore dividing and opposing and demonstrating the superiority of a vision of love, which does not fight the Romans, but instead demonstrates the paucity of what Rome believes by emphasizing that the church and the kingdom aim at a vision of good, which is greater than the profit it gets for itself and which is greater than whatever benefit it creates for us as a faction. It is about creating habits and ways of living in the world that teach us to be examples of how one could live in love, not to be evil, but to be good, not to be self-serving, but instead to serve the whole and to do what is beautiful. And it's that idea that when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, that so often we say, hey, what it does is that it saves me. And we need to augment that with, yes, it saves me, but in saving me, it not only suspends me from the penalty of death, but it calls me to do what is good and what is right and what is beautiful and what is profitable, because that is what it means to be an heir of the kingdom. And that is the kind of power that transforms lives. That is the kind of power that gives us purpose. That is the kind of power that bring down, brings down down empire. It is a way of waging struggle that is so much more powerful than war. And so, yeah, like that's how we're going to talk about these pastoral letters. They're, despite of the fact we've tried to force them into the logic of respect for institutions, they are about getting us to see the radically transformative, even revolutionary love and beauty of living lives that embody Jesus. They're about getting us to see our foundation, our head, our leader, our king, the leader of a king without empire, our father, our brother, our friend, who has made us heirs of the kingdom. And in the end, that's the point, isn't it? What does it mean to be an heir of the kingdom? As an heir of the kingdom, you are freed from the law as a coat. You are freed from the law as, a, as words. And you are freed to follow the word as model and inspiration, to act like an heir, to model the king. Rules and regulations and obedience are important, but they can only get you so far. When you are an heir to a king, you're not just subject to the rules in the same way that another subject is. You are molded by the expectation that you represent your father and king. And that turn makes all the difference because subjects do, of, sub, subjects of empire do what they do out of compulsion, but heirs do what they do out of love. Heirs do what they do in order to 
benefit the family name and for the sake of those that they serve. Subjects uh, do what they do because they fear a, a, a ruler who could compel them. Heirs do what they do because they believe it is important to embody the values that are woven into the fabric of the family. Heirs do kingdom because they believe that kingdom makes things good, makes things beautiful, makes things profitable because it demonstrates that their internal nature and their person is continuous with the external actions that they take. And by being heirs, we show that Christ is affecting in us a transformation of our souls that makes us different. The law is not a code. The new law is love. And the conditions of its effectiveness are that we see and we model its goodness and its beauty. And that is what makes the air free. Amen. Questions or discussion?